Has Russia gone all in on its offensive with nothing left in the tank? And has it produced any results? And just how mad are they at the DNR, LNR, Wagner, and other so-called proxy forces? I'm Paul, U.S. Army combat veteran. It's February 21st, 2023. This is your daily Ukraine update. Let's get right into it. Okay, in the wake of Biden's speech, you can see Ukraine is back to reporting Russian offensive operations or Russia's back to conducting them. I think both explanations are at least plausible. Uh, but as you can see, of course, honestly, if you're a viewer of this channel, you could probably plot this map. Uh, this is how predictable and just uncreative uh the russians have been uh davorichna uh you've got Kr the Kremina line bilohorivka bakhmet you know donetsk city uh they left volodar alone oh this is original uh you can see right here near the um reservoir just outside of um vasilivka uh near this airport here they're they're trying to looks like someone's actually launching an attack at uh, Kaminansky, uh, again, sort of trying maybe part of some sort of weird effort to push into Zaporizhia. Uh, it doesn't make any sense. Again, a, a lone unsupported attack. It's tough to say what the motivation might be. Um, but you can see they're trying to cross this river here. Uh, you guys know that if you're trying to cross a natural barrier like this, you have to do so pretty decisively and with a lot more firepower than uh, they almost certainly have brought to bear currently. Now, uh, let's look at the control map. Actually, there's there's no changes to the control map, right? So all of this effort by Russia, very, very little to show for it. Um, and I think it's significant uh, when we take a look at the news. First, Putin, of course, uh, gave a pretty a highly anticipated address, um, of course, in acknowledging that he was withdrawing from Russia's participation in the New START Treaty, something that set limits on nuclear arsenals. Now, does Russia actually have the resources to increase uh, the number of nuclear warheads it possesses? Um, maybe maybe and remember there's a lot of decommissioned warheads um that may or may not be easily returned to service um and russia may be feeling because it's conventional military which in addition to uh fighting wars overseas conventional militaries are also deterrents um just the same way uh, our nuclear arsenal deters enemies from invading the continental United States or Russia uh, from, you know, uh, and it was supposed to deter NATO from invading Russia. Um, that same uh, conventional armies fulfill the same deterrent function. If your conventional army is at a nadir, an all-time low, you're going to want to compensate, uh, and nuclear weapons are a, a cost-effective way to compensate if you already have an established nuclear program and nuclear arsenal. So that's probably the thinking there. It's also, of course, a political move um, as a sort of it's one of the few areas where Russia can um, assert itself against the United States. Um, but other than that, it's just sort of a nothing burger. He's uh, continually uh, playing the blame game, issuing his litany of grievances against 
the West and Ukraine and everything else. And, you know, it, one of the points that he always talks about is that he feels that the West has has started this war by allowing uh, NATO to continually expand. And just to elaborate on this, right, we can look here on the map and you can kind of see that there's a number of these countries that are sort of Russia adjacent um, that are NATO members. Uh, you know, Estonia, Latvia, Lithuania, can see there's this random chunk of Russia here, uh, Poland, uh, Slovakia, Hungary. You guys can understand. And historically, Russia has had um, literally hundreds of years uh, of national security concerns around the fact that their land border facing these European countries is extremely vulnerable. Um, Russia's primary economic power is basically... Um, located almost entirely uh, west of Moscow. So you have these, uh, so they always have felt very vulnerable throughout history. Um, this is why, of course, the Soviet Union dropped the Iron Curtain to create a sort of barrier uh, to prevent the uh, risk of European powers continuing to uh, invade um, and assert themselves against Russian influence. And Russia maintains that NATO's introduction of new members, especially in former Soviet countries, uh, somehow damages their uh, national security risk. Um, it's a it's increasingly sort of irrational, um, in my opinion, uh, because you have to just think that. You know, the days of armies marching across Europe, certainly they haven't left Russia, um, but rolling over uh, significant, you know, modern mechanized forces uh, could, especially in developed European countries, uh, could could roll over uh, things like Belarus or Lithuania or Latvia in, in, in days. And so that buffer doesn't really provide the robust security uh, blanket that it used to. But the other problem that Putin never seemed to understand is that NATO has something called the open door policy. And the NATO's open door policy is something you have to understand uh, to understand sort of the reasons why NATO has continually uh, been welcoming to new members. And in Article 10 of its founding treaty, NATO was founded in 1949, uh, NATO membership is open, is Again, in the treaty that founded NATO, it said that it is open to any European state in the position to further the principles of the treaty and contribute to the security of the North Atlantic area. Now, you may be thinking to yourself, that sort of includes Russia, does it not? You are correct. In the 90s, there was significant discussion among NATO countries of uh, actually bringing Russia into NATO when it appeared that free and fair elections were going to be a, a feature of Russian government. Um, but even again, Turkey's a member and it, their elections are... Um, but this is really important because free choice of these countries to choose whether or not to be NATO members uh, is a absolutely core tenant of NATO. And so it would be NATO is unable, 
it would literally require dissolving existing NATO and reforming it under a different treaty to exclude European countries that aspire to membership. So you might ask yourself, well, Paul, why then has Ukraine not become a member, right? Because for years uh, prior to this war, Ukraine had stated they wished to be a NATO member. And the answer is that it requires consent from all the existing members. um, And the members correctly identified that there were serious problems with bringing in Ukraine, right? The one of the largest was that Ukraine was actually uh, did not have territorial integrity. Remember, the uh, Crimean Peninsula, Ukraine has claimed since it was uh, taken in uh, 2000 and. 10, 2011, uh, and the Donbas region, right, a much smaller portion of, of Luhansk and Donetsk Oblast, um, that has been uh, contested and occupied by Russia. So if Ukraine were to ever become a NATO member, it, it would it would be untenable. It would immediately trigger Article 5 and put NATO on a war footing with Russia over this little sliver of the Donbass. It would silly. So instead, NATO seemed to try to thread the needle where it didn't say Ukraine couldn't be a member, but it also couldn't bring NATO, Ukraine in as a full member. And so it would do a, a combination of developmental work where it would work in anti-corruption and, and helping to grow and mentor their military to bring them closer to NATO standards. It also had a relationship not unlike uh, Sweden and Finland, where they weren't formal NATO members, but instead became um, tr- you know, tr- trusted allies and partners in European security. Um, so, when a lot of, when Russia uh, comes out and says that oh NATO started this by continually expanding uh, by you know I- imminently bringing Ukraine into NATO that was never on the table and it was clear for years that that was never on the table um, and NATO cannot it is unable to and has never been able to expressly prohibit European countries from being members. It would literally require the dissolution of NATO. So the fact that Putin rolls these things out in speeches is pure propaganda. And if you hear there's a lot of right-wing commentators and a lot of, of conservative commentators in the United States who are who should know better but conveniently forget about NATO's open door policy. Again, something that was instituted in 1949 and has been a core part of NATO's operating uh, principles. So not a secret, not exactly hard to find. Um, But conservative commentators love to claim that NATO's expansion uh, triggered this war somehow. Um, this is preposterous. Putin already got basically all the assurances he could need, which is to say Ukraine won't be a member as long as he continued to occupy the Donbass, which he he had done. You know, Ukraine was not on their way to kicking anyone out of the Donbass. It was a stalemated war. Um and it was fairly clear that Ukraine was never going to be a NATO member. Uh this was this 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 is why when people say it's it's pure Russian imperialism, that's what it is. Uh, he wasn't content with the status quo. He wanted greater Russian influence. It wasn't enough to simply have a 
the security guarantee he claims to want. He wanted greater Russian influence over what he saw as a former Soviet republic that has always rightfully been Russian. Um, I, I think that context is important for you guys to understand. I know it's a little bit of a digression, uh, but let's talk about a little bit of other more immediate news. Uh, first off, um, interestingly enough, uh the Ukrainian officials and Zelensky himself actually announced uh, that he tempered his stance on Bakhmut. And of course, he has come out and said, let's see if I can find the exact quote here. Um, uh, da, 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 da. Ukrainian President Zelensky said February 20th, his visit with Ukraine, that Ukraine will continue to defend Bakhmut, but not at all costs. This is the thing that I've been talking about for weeks. And it sounds like I am not alone in pushing for this, right? Sounds like there's at least some high ups at the Pentagon who wanted, who thought it was so important that the Ukrainian high command and Ukrainian armed forces understand this and not get caught in groupthink that chances are Biden was insistent that, hey, you have to prepare your guys to understand that Bakhmut is a place, is a tool. This is a tool to grind Russians into ground beef. Uh, that's kind of that's kind of messed up. I'm sorry. Uh, Bakhmut is a tool to attrit Russian forces. Please don't demonetize me, YouTube. Um, and so, as long as Bakhmut serves that function. Ukrainian forces should fight there. But the day it becomes no longer a cost-effective tool to do that, they need to be prepared to conduct a controlled withdrawal from Bakhmut. Now, I'll be the first to tell you, you can see in the last 24 hours, Russia's breakthrough really hasn't materialized into much of anything. You can see they're just a tiny widow nub right here. That's all. That's what, that's what, that's what they have to show for their big breakthrough. Um, and it probably is looking quite a bit worse for them. So there's certainly not any hurry. Bakhmut, the two routes in and out from Bakhmut to Chasavyar look fairly clear. It, it, there's really uh, no pressing strategic reason to withdraw from Bakhmut. But I think it's good that this really important point, um, this reality check, uh, comes from the United States. Uh, this is what good. This is what good allies do. This is what good friends do. Um, is they help you remind yourself not to get tunnel vision. And it actually is in some ways easier uh, for someone like Zelensky to go, hey, you know, the Ukrainian public may be demanding the holding of Bakhmut at all costs. But even they see when the big brother, right, the patron uh, uh, state, the United States, the largest provider of, of aid to Ukraine, comes in and reminds you that Bakhmut should not be held at all costs. You should understand it's a, it's a means to an end. Um, Zelensky goes, hey, I was prepared to defend Bakhmut, but the United States, they said if we wanted to keep getting aid, we had to fight the war this way. Gives him an out. So it's a good instance of political cooperation among allies. Um, what's even more interesting is that uh, an intel a Ukrainian, uh, looks like their version of the director of national intelligence is my guess, said that Russia has all combat-ready units on the line of contact in Donetsk and Luhansk and partly in Zaporizhia, which means 
that there's no reserve left. This is the all-out Russian offensive. Uh, I mean, there's. I'm sure there are some level of reserve simply to rotate troops and and to conduct basic refit. But if this is even mostly accurate, it means that there's not going to be a, a push if you if Russia does achieve a breakthrough. That would explain, of course, when we saw this breakthrough at Yadhine, why. It didn't really go anywhere, right? You guys can see that Russian forces surged forward in Yadhidne, pushing Ukrainians back uh, in a pretty broad-based assault, uh, but then it didn't materialize. This was this was the breakthrough that Russia had been waiting for, uh, right? It, lots of pressure, Ukrainian forces pulling back in, in several different places, a real chance to encircle Bakhmut. But the problem is they didn't have anybody to follow it up. They opened the door and there was no one there to walk through it. This is, of course, what we would expect from the Russian uh, Russia's struggles to exert command and control over its forces and its inability to engage an economy of force. Um, of course, there continues to be a lot of controversy around Russia's decision to fire every officer in the DNR and LNR. Uh, probably not a, a politically savvy call, even if militarily it makes sense. These guys probably aren't that good. Um, this is, of course, the difference, right? NATO and the United EU Western forces have a lot of experience in training local forces. They understand, you notice that for uh, Ukrainian forces, right? They are brought out of the war zone. They and their officers are given Western training um, that they then take back to their formations and disseminate to their own troops. And this has been a process that has gone on for years. Um, you know, I guess it's been almost 10 years. My brother went through uh, a high level um, engineer it's called captain's career course, but a course for military engineers, um, and engineer leader officers. Um, he went through it with a Ukrainian officer and this was 10 years ago. Right. And so that's the way these, this should be done. That's the best way to do this sort of thing. Take the local officers, bring them out, right. They've shown a willingness to do the core business of leading, right. Which is being with your troops, coming up with a plan, executing it in combat, learning and doing it again, right? So you've got the character. So then you just bring them in, you give them the schooling, then you put them back out onto the force. Russia's decision instead to create this giant um, cadre of trained leaders who are now extremely mad at Russia and have a lot of combat experience and a lot of clout uh, is, is a really not good call. Um, even worse is that it sounds like Prigozhin's Wagner group uh, can't get access to artillery shells and heavy weaponry. Russian conventional forces have said they are for us, no more for you. Um, right? Prigozhin himself has said that Wagner servicemen are experiencing twice the number of casualties, probably twice as many as Russian MOD forces, um, because they can't suppress Ukrainian artillery fire. Uh and of course, this it's not clear if this is just him blaming, uh, playing the blame game, blaming others for Wagner's failures. Um, but one interesting thing is that if you're recruiting prisoners from a prison, they can be turned into ground infantry units of limited effectiveness fairly quickly. But what you can't do is you can't train them to do 
more technical tasks. Those take more time. And artillery is a science. Uh, and you cannot turn these convicts into uh, the 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 highly technical specialists in artillery, especially if you don't have computerized fire direction centers and uh, if you're relying on old school math to get your your artillery uh, fire missions up and running, you simply may not they may simply not have the um, gray matter in their formation to run a complex artillery system. Uh, this is something that, of course, Russia has invested in. They have years of artillery uh, officers and, and artillerymen and a lot of institutional experience so that even when there's attrition, new crews come in, they're able to learn from the old heads and get that knowledge up to snuff. If you just have prisoners leading prisoners, you're never going to get that. Anyway, guys, that is all I had for you. I know this is quite a long one, but I hope you appreciated a little bit of that geopolitics. Of course, if you guys want access to the viral combat videos, um, every week I drop a breakdown on the Patreon. YouTube won't let me post them here. Um, and in fact, I'm doing a special one Wednesday for the so-called Rambo Trench video. This is the uh, helmet cam footage of a lone Ukrainian defender. Uh, absolutely, it, it just just really going kind of Rambo on a um, uh, probably a Wagnerite Russian assault. So it's wild stuff. We looked at a small portion of it on Friday, but more of the video has been released and it's really been significant enough that I, I thought I should just check it out. So become a member, click down below, support the channel, get access to some of the craziest videos the internet has to offer. And of course, thanks to all my Patreons, patrons. Thanks to my Lieutenant tier patrons, uh, EC 1978, Predator 7R, Judith Haynes, our Colonel tier patrons, and all our Lieutenant tier patrons, and all you guys. I'll see you in the, in the next one.